Hello, my name's Adam Spring and this is a Remotely Interested podcast hosted at remotely-interested.com. So, my rebellious band of remotely interested listeners, my guest for this episode is someone that made it on the list first time round. Now, that man is Carl Bass, former CEO of Autodesk, and as I said, he was somebody that when I started this podcast about technology and people that I wanted to interview very, very much. Now, it just so happens, as a total coincidence, we recorded this the last week of November 2017. Now, I say it's a coincidence because that same week, Autodesk announced that 1,200 people were going to be laid off. Carl and I do not talk about this. That's not on this podcast. What is on this podcast, however, is generative design, distributed computing, Autodesk, and beyond. And let's break those down a little bit. So Autodesk did a massive U-turn at one stage. We talk about that. And fully embraced new technologies and rapidly became a leader in their field. One of the things I always wanted to ask Carl was... He was the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And in order to do something like that, you're taking on a lot. So one of the questions that I do ask him, a little bit of a spoiler, is what that just entails and what the greatest lessons that he learned actually were. So we do go into that. And on the generative design end, we go into a lot of things that feed into the distributed computing market as well as other trends. Now, in terms of Autodesk and beyond... We obviously talk about other stuff about the company, but we also talk a little bit about what he's doing now as of December 2017 when I record this. And another interesting thing that happened was there were several themes that started to come up quite naturally when I was editing this podcast. And in order to answer these, I enlisted a few friends, both of mine and of Carl's as well. So these include Amar Hanspal, who was the co-CEO for a little while after Carl stepped down in February 2017 with Andrew Anagnost, that being of Autodesk. I also speak with Chris Anderson, good friend of Carl's, who is the former editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine, wrote a book on makers of which we talk about, and is currently the CEO of 3D Robotics, a UAV stroke drone company. Finally, Joe DeCure. Now, Joe, as of December 2017, when I'm recording this, was a board member of the Consumer Electronics Division of IEEE, and in terms of his past achievements in the personal computing and video game space, well, there's no other way to say it. The guy's a legend. He was a core hardware designer on the Atari VCS Stroke 2600 video game console, the Atari 400 and 800 personal computers, as well as the Amiga computer as well. And if that wasn't enough, he was also a major contributor to USB the storage devices that you and I probably have sitting around all over the house. So Joe's been around the block. Now, before I do leave you in the capable hands of Carl, I will just say, you know, feel free to follow this podcast on Twitter, on the Facebooks, uh, subscribe to it on the SoundClouds. And if I post this on YouTube at some point, which I'm sure I will, feel free to subscribe to that as well. And of course, as always, one final thing, enjoy the show. Oh, after graduating from college and, uh, been spending a bunch of years going around and working at all kinds of jobs. I went back to college, finished, uh, started a software company that started out as Flying Moose Systems. Um, we later changed the name to Ithaca Software, and then I sold the business. Uh, we sold the business to Autodesk, and I joined the company, worked at Autodesk for a bunch of years. I left and started another company called Buzzsaw which a few years later we sold to Autodesk and then I went back to Autodesk and I worked there in a number of roles, including COO and CEO. 
Now, in terms of, you know, Autodesk being the CEO of a company of that size, what would you say the biggest lessons from that role for you have been? Oh, probably, you know, the biggest lesson I learned was I went in um, thinking that the job of the CEO was to make lots of important decisions and that other stuff would take care of itself. And I realized that by the time I left, uh, I was almost 180 degrees opposite. That I realized that really your job is not making big, important decisions. That first and foremost, it was the culture of the place. It was hiring, it was hiring great people. And it was setting direction in a very broad strokes. And then that took care of itself. And so it was, it was probably opposite of where I came in thinking you really had your hands on the controls to realizing that the CEO's power is very indirect. And the way you control an organization of that size is very indirect as well. And I think a couple of things that, about him as a person that always stuck with me, which is also what made him a very effective leader, was one, he was humble. So you could always see that he was very approachable. And in many ways, the th- times I used to see him be the happiest was when he was in his workshop or talking to students, you know, just kind of being a regular person. And, you know, he never exuded like I'm Julius Caesar, kind of like, you know, a lot of CEOs fall into the trap of, there's so many people who always tell them or listen to them that they kind of get it overinflated in terms of their belief in their righteousness. And I think Carl was always very down to earth in that. And the other thing was he always encouraged debate. So one way he got to the answer is that he would formulate a hypothesis, but then kind of almost argue against his own point of view so that all of us could attack that. And by doing so, it let a better idea emerge. And so that humility and the ability to say, you know, this is my idea, but make it better, or or here's my thought, challenge it. I think it always led to a better outcome for the company. And he always had the company first. It was never about him. It was also, even more than the company, it was always about the customer, the industry. And I think that is what I will always, you know, remember. And it's very interesting because Autodesk really, it went through a massive change under your tenure as CEO. Obviously, the famous example is in 2009 with the Sketchbook Pro app. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and kind of being a CEO at the time of when this wave towards distributed computing really started to impact the 3D design communities that Autodesk cater towards. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that happened, and, you know, it's interesting because the technology didn't slow down even though 2008, 2009 was the economic crisis. So that's all you know. That's always the thing you got to remember. The backdrop was the world's coming to an end, and people are, you know, going out and buying guns and burying gold in their garages. And yet, things were moving forward. And so, um, one of the things we saw was, you know, there were a number of trends. And I would say one of the things that we really liked to do was spend time figuring out what the big trends were and how they were going to intersect the needs of the customers. And then from there, you know, take the next step. You know, so it was very top-down in the sense of, here are the big trends, we can see them out on the horizon, don't quite understand the time frame for them, but we realize we have to head in that direction, we're going to have to make, you know, a bunch of twists and turns along the road. And mobile computing, distributed computing was one of the things that we saw. Infinite computing in terms of what was going on with the cloud, you know, was another one. And there were, you know, there were a bunch of other technology trends, but, you know, 
those were some of the big ones that you could say that, you know, they might be three to five years off, but they really influence how design and engineering was done, you know, for a generation. The thing I found interesting as well, particularly um, in your last uh, Autodesk University, which is Autodesk's major conference every year in Las Vegas, uh, Jeff Kowalski, the CTO, he, his presentation was very interesting because he brought up the idea of creative computing. And it's very interesting yep. looking at Autodesk in terms of productivity computing and obviously AutoCAD being one of the great things that helped build the company. But do you think we've only really now started to scratch the surface of what creative computing can do because of this infrastructure that's now around the physical internet and you know, also this, I guess, this evolution or revolution in display technologies, whether it's VR, whether it's having affordable touchscreens, stuff like that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that we figured out was, um, if you think about it, remember loosely called, you know, all these products fell into computer-aided design, you know, or CAD. And up until now, um, you know, the computer hasn't done much aiding. You know, it's been computer-documented design. And that's true whether it's in the 2D realm or the 3D realm. Um, It's mostly been used as a tool to document designs. You can use it a little bit for design exploration, but I'd say more of it is, you know, putting down solidly what already exists for the most part in your mind. As you move forward and you have this vast amount of computing and we start tapping into, you know, some of the generative design and machine learning techniques, I think we're at the very beginning of what computers are going to do for design and engineering, you know, or creativity in general. Um, Up until now, it's been entirely... Uh, human creativity and using the computers to uh, write it down. I think, you know, over the next decade, we're going to become collaborators with our computers in exploring design problems. The maker movement is about 10 years old. Um, Obviously, you know, the the concept of makers has been around for for centuries. Um, But, you know, the the current incarnation, the one that grew up around Make Magazine and Maker Fairs, et cetera, is about about 10 years old. And, um, you know, one of the interesting questions is what's different about about the maker movement as opposed to, you know, hobbies and workshops of lore. Um, And the, the main answer is that is that um, uh, the maker movement uh, came out of the internet culture. Um, so this is the notion of online communities. And the second is that the, the notion of digital manufacturing or prototyping tools like 3D printers and CNCs and scanning and things like that, Arduino, electronics and all that. Um, so those things are all sort of circa 2007. And uh, they've gone through the pretty traditional Gartner hype cycle, which is to say that when we first realized we had the potential to do desktop prototyping, we then call it desktop manufacturing, probably a little bit hyperbolically. Um, and we got very excited about it. It felt like, you know, the notion of democratized factories was within reach. Um, and I think we're probably a little wrong about that in, in two ways. First of all, that um, the, you know, did confuse prototyping with manufacturing. Um, and secondly, I think we confused um, the notion of being able to make a few with being able to make many. Um, and as, as somebody who started the maker movement and, and uh, you know, industrialized it and built a company, et cetera, I would say that professionally, I'm no longer in the maker movement. Um, I graduated and became a regular company doing regular stuff. You know, that, that doesn't mean I'm not as a hobbyist still in the maker movement, but I just do, I do, I do think that there was this, uh, this notion of sort of the, the you know, distributed factory 
which um, probably didn't make sense. And instead, what we find is that we basically lower the barrier to entry to, to you know, creating things that could be manufactured. But once we actually start, start manufacturing them at scale, we, we do revert to relatively traditional manufacturing methods, including making them in, in, in China. And this brings me to, you know, another, another thing we probably got a little wrong about the maker movement, which is that it was, it was definitely um, captured the imagination of uh, countries and people in countries who had lost manufacturing. And there was a slightly nationalistic tinge to it, the notion that it would bring manufacturing back you know, by automating it or, or making it available at small batch uh, scale or, you know, re- reducing the need for, you know, concentrated supply chains, et cetera. And, and that, I think, uh, just, just has not played out. I mean, absolutely, automation has, has changed manufacturing. But, you know, but the maker, but automation has, has had been happening for, for years before the maker movement. And I don't think that the maker movement per se um, has, uh, has, has changed the trajectory of, uh, of, of manufacturing uh, globally. So th- those are the things we got, we got you know, probably wrong about it. Um, what we got right about it, I think, was the notion that, that uh, you know, these technologies of you know, additive and subtractive, et cetera, were going to continue to get better faster, and it was going to start to look more like a Moore's Law thing. And that because they came, they came out of the Internet, these things were all going to essentially use Internet technologies, be networked, um, you know, be able to share files and, you know, have that more of that open source nature, which is going to inspire innovation and accelerate creativity. And that did happen. Um, and so I think that, you know, that uh, we were half right, um, which is to say it's the golden age of invention. Um, but we were wrong in saying it's the golden age of distributed manufacturing. You're a, a maker yourself. And I find that very yep. interesting. You've got the hands-on approach to things. I was wondering where your interest in—you've uh, got quite a lot large machine shop, haven't you? And you're very much into woodwork and stuff like that. Where did your interests in that come from, and how did that impact the way in which you were looking at your products when you were at Autodesk, if it did at all? I've always been interested in making things. I've built machines and furniture and houses and boats and sculpture, and so I've I've always made things. I, it was interesting in the beginning. I don't think there was much overlap because I didn't find the computer tools very helpful. It's probably about a decade ago now, you know, maybe 10, 12 years ago, where I started saying, okay, these computerized tools are enabling me to enhance my creativity and imagination and allow me to do things I couldn't do before, that I really started getting involved with it, Um, you know, tying these two things together. Because up until then, you know, if I think about the boats I built, they were all done, you know, in a way that could have been done 50 or 100 years ago. And, in, you know, and it might have had some modern techniques, you know, materials, but mostly they were very traditional methods of building these things. And then all of a sudden, you know, I finally got to the point where I said, no, 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 we can design things differently. And then the other thing that's really the big breakthrough, and that's what I'm spending a lot of my time on these days, is this idea of digital fabrication. You know, we're taking a microprocessor and applying the microprocessor to how you actually fabricate things. You know, whether that's a laser cutter or a water jet or a CNC machine, we are now using, you know, computers to drive that fabrication in a way we couldn't before. And so the two of them are much more powerful than either one is alone. You know, this idea of digital design and digital fabrication. The thing I found very interesting, certainly from your time as CEO at um, Autodesk, is you were very much into this notion of organic design 
it seemed. And I don't know whether is is that, you know, did, did the influence of being so close to Berkeley, you know, the the, the home or big, <laughs> uh, you know, big advocate of uh, synthetic design or synthetic biology, sorry. Was that, did that influence you at all? No, you know, I, I think what it really was is that it was interesting that the techniques we found to do generative design, uh, which are, you know, using vast amounts of computing power to evolve answers, end up mimicking you know, natural processes. I wouldn't say they're identical, but they mimic it. And the results are very similar. So if you've seen as we've done some of the work in topology optimization, it ends up looking remarkably like the way things like um, bone structures have evolved over time. Now, things like, you know, skeletons have evolved over millions of years to get to a certain point. Um, What we were really able to do is take that and condense that down so that, you know, through cloud computing, you could basically do in hours what took millions of years and come up with solutions that were very similar. And that's why I think so much of the stuff looked organic. But if you, you know, if you look at many of our products, while there are some that were, you know, um, very useful, and I'd say naturally lent themselves to more organic designs, there are many of the tools we have that lead themselves to much more, you know, rigid forms if you look at the tools, you know, most of the mechanical modeling tools as, as well as things like Revit, um, they, have a, they have a very different look of what comes easily from the tool. Now, you can always take any tool and um, kind of torture it into doing more than it was designed to do. But I do think there are certain forms that come easily out of certain tools. Personal was about entertainment and professional was about information and ideas. VisiCalc was a killer application in the personal computer information processing space because these financial types wanted to do what if and to be able to change a cell and have the computer ripple through all of it. Now, you could, in principle, model that behavior on a terminal where the computation is on the other side of, you know, a communications barrier. But that would be pretty slow, whereas these guys took the first appliance compute device right on your desktop, and they put that financial calculations right there on your desktop, so the communications were quite fast compared to what they were used to at the time. Now, today, you can run um, Office 360 running on your mobile phone. And you can run Excel on your mobile phone. And you can make a change in Excel entry on your mobile phone. And it communicates by high bandwidth Wi-Fi and broadband back to the server where Microsoft is supporting Office 365. And then sends the data back to you so fast, you can hardly perceive it. Video games at home were powerful because, again, the, the, dis, the information didn't need to travel anywhere. There was no worldwide information delivery infrastructure. The story moved home. So you can sit there in your living room playing against your buddy, and you and he both have the same game controllers. You're talking to the same intelligence that's right there in front of you with a relatively high bandwidth channel directly from the computing engine to the display. So that's common to both 
the professional uses and the personal uses of distributed intelligence, which is what the microprocessor revolution that started in the 1970s accomplished. In terms of, because one of the things I'm finding very interesting here talking to you is, you know, this idea of now we take computers and we take the form of computing that has enough processing power to be able to do stuff like generative design for granted. But in the earlier days, because clearly you were with the company at the time, how difficult or easy was it to keep people's heads around, you know, taking a computer and being able to use it for 3D design? Because obviously, you know, you look at something like the 80s, IBM machines, they were very much marketed as office machines, you know, so they didn't even have color screens most of the time. It was green and stuff like that. So how, you know, in terms of that Hurley packaging computing with the notion of 3D design or iterative design, what was, was it interesting to see the evolution of that? I mean, if you if you go back to the early 80s and watch the progression through, mm. um, in almost every dimension about computing, we had inadequate resources. So as you, you, know, you talked about, let's just talk about the screens. Mm. Many of them didn't have color, and the resolution on it was terrible. You know, the processing speed was totally inadequate for many of the things that people wanted to do. There was not there was not enough memory. There was not enough connectivity. I mean, so almost on every dimension, people were always trying to eat out the most they could from the limited resources that they had at hand. We finally, in the last couple of years, and I think it will continue, reached the point where I wouldn't ever say we have enough computing or enough resolution, but we're starting to be able to approach the problem differently. So while your CPUs are only marginally faster than they were five years ago, um, nowadays the fact that I can access huge amounts of computing, whether it's sitting on the Google Cloud or the Amazon Cloud, you know, on AWS, and I can get on demand as much computing power as I want is a way to kind of work around the fundamental limitation of how much processing power we could put in a single box. We've also started to explore things like, you know, GPUs, you know, so more specialized computing devices than something like a CPU. And so for the first time, we're starting to put adequate amounts of power. Now, I think as the mindset changes, so that we start getting people to realize that computing power is relatively inexpensive, you know, that you can rent a CPU hour for maybe three cents, that the idea of using thousands or tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of hours for doing a computing task and engineering can be, is actually a reasonable thing to do. And I think, you know, most of the history of computing is we've treated the computing stuff as like scarce. We've treated it as though it was precious. And I think if you make that shift to say, no, I can just, you know, go onto my browser and click on Amazon and get, you know, 12,000 CPU hours like that, I think it changes how people will approach using the computer to co-design. I've known Carl since 96. This is the first time I met him um, when he was, I guess, the leader of the R14 project. And I think the thing that has struck me from that time um, and really became clear when Carl took over the CEO job at Autodesk was his ability to see around corners. So he had a unique ability to think long-term about where the industry is going and not just um, 
I would say the construction and manufacturing industry, but the software industry in general, and also kind of match that with uh, the applicability in terms of get the timing right is the other thing I would say is that it was not just vision, but it was vision plus timing. So if you think about Autodesk and, you know, picking up BIM, it wasn't like people hadn't tried 3D design in AEC before, but Carl kind of picked the time right in the, in the shift of the industry going from drawings to models, right? Um, likewise, when suites or subscription became a thing, I mean, Carl was very good about kind of having a good gut about where uh, and when the uh, you know, pull the lever, you know? So I think that was, I always said that he was the, he had the most CPU of any of us in the management team. So he had this unique CPU uh, computability of like really figuring out where things were going. So that was one thing about Carl that uh, it's, I, I think really always stayed with me. The other is he kind of was always, um, there were two unique things about him is one he was always like the, disruptive thinker, which is like, you know, I would always think of him like the kid in the back of the class who was, you know, kind of always questioning the professor, right? You know, and in some ways, in the beginning, it's an annoyance. But a little while later, you go, you know, he's glomming onto something and he's kind of like questioning why. And by doing so, you can start to see how if you took the thing apart and put it back together in a different way, it could be so much better and different. I think that was something unique about Carl is the ability to sort of disrupt um, in a way that created value. It wasn't just, you know, for the sake of disruption. How do you think display technologies, and obviously, you know, in the 90s in the gaming uh, arena, we've seen the, the emergence of VR trying to become a consumer-based product. But how do you think things that are emerging like the HoloLens Oculus, you know, Vive and things like that. How do you think they'll change design? Because obviously, you know, before we were sort of restricted to the screen, but now the idea of a display is completely changing. I think it's changing. I'm less um, enthusiastic about VR than I am about AR. And as, you know, and look, for 30 years, I've been a VR skeptic. <laughs> you know, over the last, you know, and that, that that's a true statement. You know, the the first time I got nauseous wearing a headset is in the 1980s. Wow. Um, you know, and, and I've been getting nauseous ever since. Um, now, I think the most recent crop of devices are actually good enough. Like, I, you know, I've been in a couple environments with the Vive, which are actually great. Now, I think when you when you take this idea of VR and apply it to design and engineering, I would separate two different activities. I don't think we're going to be using lots of VR to do design. And I don't think we're going to use a lot of the uh, physical manipulation techniques that people think are good for designing. You know, this idea that you're going to stand there with your arms up and pretend to model clay. Yep. I don't think that is going to be a viable way to work at all. I do, however, think using VR as a tool to explore design and educate, you know, clients and customers and get feedback. I think it will be a valuable part of the design review cycle, but I don't think it's fundamentally the way most people will want to design. And I think many of the techniques that people are exploring with using their hands are actually um, really substandard. 
in terms of precision and fidelity. Mm. And, you know, just generally speaking, you know, I challenge you, just go, you know, in in your office, take your arms and hold them above your your heart or above your head. Do that for an hour and tell me how tired you are. (laughs) You know, and you would say, oh, I can hold my hands up all day long. I said, go try it. You know, get, get, get back to me after you've tried for a while. Now, obviously, I think the, another interesting thing uh, with you before we move on to the next topic, uh, in terms of the the Autodesk arena, is you you took to me anyway as somebody that observed this, you took the company from potentially an otherwise specialist group and you started to move it into a more general direction. In terms of shifting a brand like that, how much hard work actually goes into that? You know, I think we were aided. The tailwind there was, as you talked about, you know, this more distributed computing, you know, creative computing, this awareness that you could use all kinds of devices for creative endeavors, I think was certainly our tailwind. You know, I think what we did do successfully is raise, um, we, we raised the bar in terms of people understanding what Autodesk did and the role it played in design. Um, I also think one of the things that, you know, during that period, we went from being what I would have considered a follower in technology to a leader in technology. And by becoming the leader in many of the technologies, um, we were able to raise the awareness of Autodesk in, you know, many people's minds. And so I think those things went, you know, hand, hand in hand that, you know, just asserting without having a leadership role is a very difficult place to be. And I think instead, you know, as we changed to being a, lead, a leader in many of the design fields, it became much easier to tell the story. And we were thinking about things that were much more interesting and relevant for our customers. Yeah, I mean, well, Carl and, you know, Carl is, is um, you know, he and I know each other through many dimensions. But one of the things we, we really geek out on is that, you know, he was a, uh, you know, he, uh, his, his, He's a software guy, but his passion was, you know, reinventing manufacturing, um, you know, digitizing, you know, those, those tools, automating it, you know, making it look more like, you know, the Internet. And, um, you know, that was his job. Um, I was just the opposite. I was, you know, I was, it was a hobby um, for me. Um, but, you know, I could see the same things uh, he saw. I ended up, um, you know, I, I didn't, despite the company's name of 3DR, we don't actually make 3D printers and, and, you know, it, it, it's, it's uh, you know, we, we use them, but we, but I didn't make that my, my career. And so, um, and so instead, you know, I think that, uh, you know, when we, when we, when we geek out, we think about, about how Silicon Valley approaches deep learning, you know, internet of things, um, you know, smart software sensors, um, how that can transform traditional industries. Um, in my particular case, I ended up transforming, uh, you know, the construction industry or being part of, of the world that's transforming the construction industry by digitizing it um, and making it so that you could, you know, manage it like a software um, project. Um, and, uh, you know, that was one of the three legs of Autodesk's stool. Autodesk did manufacturing, construction, and creativity and Hollywood stuff. Um, and I think Carl um, um, focused more on the manufacturing side and, um, his passions are, are, are still very much there. I mean, the, the process of making factories, you know, connected and what we call closed loop, um, you know, where they actually can, you know, get feedback. Um, that process is going to take decades and we're just at the beginnings of it. Um, and, um, you know, he continues to see um, 
opportunities both for him to experiment um, in his own workshop, for him to use digital tools, and for him to evangelize for this um, broadly. So I was wondering if you could talk more about what you're doing now after Autodesk and the work that you're doing with startups and companies like Alphabet. Well, I mean, here's, here's what I'm doing. Um, just in general, I'm spending, you know, a bunch of time in my shops and we can talk about things I'm building. Um, but, you know, but it's the, other, the, the other couple of days a week, I divide it between I'm working with a handful of startups um, and the folks at Alphabet and including Google X. And, you know, and they're all interesting things. I really love mostly what I'm doing with the small startups are companies who are applying computing to the physical world. And so this is people who are putting spaceships up, you know, sending up rockets. This is people who are doing satellites, uh, robotic construction equipment. Those are the kind of things that interest me is taking, you know, this really um, well-established computing ideas and bringing them to the physical world where we haven't really had them. And so I'm doing that. And then, you know, I spend, you know, some amount of time each week, you know, working with Alphabet and Google X and, you know, talking to the leaders of those companies and thinking about what are the important problems and, you know, what comes next and where, where, where they should do their work. At the moment for, you know, this relationship between the physical world and computing, 3D design, generative design, whatever you want to call it. Do you think there's parallels in terms of the user communities to um, the compu- personal computing revolution or market growth from the 80s and the 90s in the sense that, you know, you're taking this this otherwise specialist tool that's starting to emerge in professional work environments and it's starting to proliferate out into other groups. You know, for example, there's a 3D technologies user space on Facebook and stuff like that. Do you think there's there's a parallel there between, you know, that 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 1980s, 1990s computer market and where we're seeing these technologies go now? People, I mean, if you just look and uh, I just had this conversation the other day where people were really regretting how architects don't draw anymore and designers draw less and stuff. And one, I don't think that's wholly true. I think there are many architects and designers who, you know, draw incredibly well. But um, oh, I remember I was I was at the Metropolitan Museum in New York, and we were looking, we were we were looking at a um, Michelangelo exhibit. But the discussion quickly went and went to this idea that you know many people, young people, are real have, who have been brought up in a world of gaming, are really conversant in three D in three D space and three D modeling, and I think we have a new generation of tools and a much broader audience that is interested in exploring it. You know, and now we have devices, you know, I mean, people forget this. And, you know, when they go back and look at the 80s, there were some things being done on PCs, but many of the things were being done on workstations that cost $100,000 and software that cost $50,000. Nowadays, we can be modeling, you know, on iDevices and, you know, Android devices cost hundreds of dollars. And so I think that, you know, and they're, infinitely more capable than, you know, the ones of 30 years ago. So I think it's incredible that you have this accessibility, but you also have this interest. And so, you know, um, which I think, which I think is fantastic. So I'd like to start by thanking Amar, Chris and Joe for enriching this already very strong podcast even further. I think Carl was a great person to interview, really easy. And 
Another thing to refer back to some of the things that Amar said is he's also very humble. And I guess in a way, that's what makes him a, a treasure of Silicon Valley in 2017, moving into 2018. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how Carl helps a company like Alphabet and helps something like Google X, particularly with taking otherwise experimental ideas or let's not call them products, but I guess uh, things looking to be products and applying them to the real world. Because, you know, you don't get a better example of somebody thinking about everyday people than talking about people burying gold in their gardens, which that that's something that I just yeah that just almost made me crack up. Anyway, I will leave you to it for now. I am sure there are plenty of other things I could have spoken about in this conclusion with this one. But if you do want to reach out to me, then leave comments on the SoundCloud page, and if I do put it up on YouTube, leave them there as well. And if you want me to uh, respond to those, then I will because um, I'm happy to answer them. Anyway, I will leave you to it for now, and until next time, I'll see you soon. There are many ways in which you can support the remotely interested podcast. And it doesn't necessarily involve shiny things or money, though if you want to give me either, more than happy to accept them. Now, there's the Twitter page, there's the Facebook page, there's the content pages like YouTube, and again, there's also the SoundCloud and remotely-interested.com. And if you want to subscribe to any of those, particularly the SoundCloud, the Twitters and the Facebooks of this world, then please do so, because I love doing this for you and most of all, love connecting with you. What are you working on at the moment in your workshop that's exciting you the most? Oh, I'm mostly working on using um, uh, machine learning to drive industrial machines. I've turned a MIG welder into a um, metal 3D printer. And uh, the con- rather than more traditional explicit control software, um, building neural networks to control it. And I have a couple of other machines uh, on the back burner where I'm using neural networks to actually drive them. Uh, one is a robot that's doing some grinding and sanding. And so I have, a, I have a bunch of contraptions that hopefully I'll finish in, you know, in the next few months. So you're a serial tinker then by the sounds of it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs>